0: This evening's passage is from 2 Corinthians, chapter 6, starting at verse 3, and it's on page 966 in the Church Bibles. We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance in in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. By purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love. By truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as imposters and yet are true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying, and behold, we live, as punished, and yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children. Widen your hearts also. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said... I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, and then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy.
1: Our Father, we thank you for um, the opportunities that are ahead of us. And thank you, Lord, for this letter to Corinthians, which very clearly and very persuasively reminds us what authentic ministry and church is. For the opportunities that we are to take to speak the gospel into the culture are on your terms, not ours, and we trust you, and we trust everything you have said to us in your word about what we're to do, what we're to say, and what it feels like to be authentic, and we want to be, and where we're not, we pray that you would change us, and where we are, we pray that you would affirm us, And we're excited once again to sit under your word and for you to speak to us right into the days in which we are living. And we pray for energy to listen and hearts that are soft to change and hearts that are willing to to take encouragement where it is right. And all this we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Now, the service sheet, you'll help to have that in front of you tonight, but most importantly, your Bible on your phone or on your lap. Paul uh, writes to the church in Corinth. He writes to Christians he knows and loves. He writes out of concern for them because they are distancing themselves from him and from his teaching on the gospel, on the Christian life, on Christian distinctiveness. They distance themselves from Paul, his teaching and his ministry experience, which we might characterize as hardship or suffering or serving, it is for many in the church in Corinth too banal or not sophisticated enough, too crass, just too hard. And there are plenty of people, leaders and teachers in the church in Corinth are teaching in a way that is different from Paul. In content and style of speech, their experience of life is, on the face of it, more attractive. One of the things they are not doing nearly so much as Paul is speaking about sin and repentance and the true gospel. Now, we're at the end of the section of the letter from 2.14 to 7.4, and we're in a summary section tonight or an application of that or all that Paul has been saying he applies to their hearts and God does to ours. We're at the end of a section where Paul has set out fully and clearly and persuasively the nature of true, authentic ministry, his ministry to them and among them, As well as Titus and Timothy, Paul speaks often of us. By that, he means Titus and Timothy and him. And we're at the end of that section where Paul has said it all out, what the true gospel is, what the Christian life is, how as Christians they are to be distinctive, separated from worldly thinking and behavior. And as he concludes in our passage, in this summary or application passage. Once again, he sets out his credentials. He appeals to them for their allegiance in an extraordinarily moving, heartfelt way. And he calls them, anticipating their return to his message as an apostle of Christ, to repent and to turn from ungodliness in the life of the church. And he does it because he loves them, and it matters so very much. Now, you'll see on the sheet, there are three headings and then three applications. Firstly, the apostle's authenticity, Paul's authenticity. And we get that in chapter 6, verses 3 to 10. Extraordinary uh, paragraph. Begins, we put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. How? How does authentic ministry commend itself? Now, one of my favorite places to work at the moment. I have spells when I need different uh, places to work. Now, my very favorite place is here. But during uh, some of the darker days in Cluny, when there was no heating, I used to frequent the portrait gallery and a little library in the portrait gallery. And I love looking at the portraits And what Paul gives us here in verses 3 to 10 is a three color portrait of authentic ministry experience now he has said a lot about the content of his teaching the first color on this portrait is hardship now just let me just take this in Now, as we take it in, we might think this is extreme in the sense that it's not our experience. Now, that is both untrue and true. It is not our experience in terms of the grade of it, and therefore it is extreme. But it is and should be all of our experience to a far lesser extent, particularly as we enter into normal times, exactly as Ian was praying in what is a thoroughly secular context. That's the world of the Bible. It's the world of Corinth. So, great endurance. Well, I think we can all, in a sense, empathize with that. Afflictions, hardships, More and more we are hearing through the week as we chat together in small groups and in other contexts of the difficulties Christians are facing. Beatings, imprisonments, and then we're not at that world, but many in the world are. Riots, labors, we're certainly in the realm of sleepless nights hunger dishonor slander certainly treated as impostors increasingly unknown irrelevant dying the world will tell you that Three young men or women standing up professing their faith is not happening, but it is all over the country. Punished, sorrowful, poor, having nothing. Now, Paul's situation is extreme. But behind the extreme outworking of that first brush stroke on the canvas, which is hardship, that is authentic Christian experience. And as we have returned to this building, in the weeks leading up to that, and in the weeks having come back to it, there has been an increase of just that kind of stuff in people's life. Second brush stroke and It is a contrastive one, and wonderfully so, a godliness, in spite of the hardships, or as a result of them and produced by them. It's both purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, and truthful speech. And let me encourage you that as a church family, and let's be really practical about it, as we have navigated through a whole lot of what is potentially human complexity in terms of moving here, there, and everywhere, and even in the manner in which we've come back and got up and running again, purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, and truthful speech. And here's the thing. In Paul's life, what happens from verse 8 onwards is he begins to put, he begins to mingle on his canvas the brush strokes of hardship with the brush strokes of godliness. And that's where the Christian church is so extraordinarily powerful in another worldly way in a humble, servant-hearted way because people meet in the Christian church that is opposed and that loves Jesus and his character and there is no one more disarming than him and attractive. So verse 8, notice the link, through honor and dishonor. They go together, the dishonor of the world, the honor of God, through slander and praise, We are treated as impostors and yet are true. There's that unshakable, not confidence in our own knowledge or our own convictions, but in the revealed Word of God, truth in the world, as unknown and yet known well by God. As dying and yet behold we live. In a number of ways. The church, in some senses, is dying in our country, but in other ways is alive and well. Punished but not yet killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet in make many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. Now each one of these couplets merits. Uh, a digression, which I'm not going to be tempted to do. But think about them over the course of this week. And remember that these two brushstrokes of hardship and godliness weave together on the canvas. And God is fashioning in, well, this church, and Paul prays again in Corinth, godliness, christ and he does so in spite of difficulty and often through difficulty. The third brushstroke on the canvas is the power of God, and that is clear in the apostle's heart. This is not his remarkable testimony, but it is a remarkable testimony to the power of God at work in and through his authentic uh, servants. Remember Paul's conversion. He never forgot who he was and who God made him. At the heart of verse 3, uh, uh, 10 is verse 7. The power of God were the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. How do we engage in our culture? How do we live as churches in the world in the power of God with the weapons of righteousness, the Word of God, prayer? One in our right hand and one in our left. And there in that one verse is a mandate for the church in our time. The Word of God and prayer engaging in the culture. Now, let's turn to the Apostles' appeal for allegiance. And all of the time, the appeal is coming to the Corinthian Christians from the Apostle Paul. And all of the time, as we Study and listen to God speak to us through his apostles' words. You should and I should be hearing an appeal from Paul and all of the apostles to our hearts for our allegiance. And it is an exactly relevant application in our time. Would the apostle Paul be appointed to be the pastor of this church? And he is appealing to us all the apostles are appealing Jesus apostles in their words are appealing to our hearts for our allegiance exactly like Paul was appealing to the church in Corinth in an atmosphere where people were being enticed by a slightly different message A lack of emphasis on sin and repentance. And as you hear that appeal from the Apostle, hear it on the back of his description of his life. And you will hear through him the appeal of another the Lord Jesus, whose life is behind every authentic Christian life. Paul's words in, and it's bracketed, 6.11 to 13 and 7.2 to 4, are extraordinarily emotional. Passionate persuasive from a loving heart, full of affection, concern, and urgency as he appeals to their hearts. You know, there is a massive difference between being emotional and emotive, between being persuasive and manipulative. Paul never crosses the line from emotional to emotive or persuasive to manipulative. His appeal to them through these chapters, is on the basis of the gospel that Jay read. Christ died for our sins. The Christian life lived distinctively in the world, and a life of suffering service, these are the credentials to which he appeals to them. But boy, he means it that they give their hearts back to him. And there's a lesson there for us. When a Christian we know, a church we know, or the church we're in, is drifting or distancing themselves from the apostles' teaching, it matters so much, and that is objectively true. It really does matter, but how much does it matter to us? One of the dangers of a church of Chalmers' size of, say, 350 people, and one of the vital importances of small groups as Ian prayed is that without that you just cannot see what's going on in people's life it's such a safety net because God never ever meant a local church to be a place where people were unknown it matters so much in your small group When you see someone distancing themselves from the apostles' teaching, that you love them and appeal to them and engage with them. Just listen to Paul's language. I'm going to read out of the NIV. It just it's a bit freer in its language. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children. Open wide your hearts also. Make room in your heart for us. Extraordinary. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort, I am overflowing. With joy And then on the basis, and now, now point number three, the apostle, Paul then calls them to repent and separate from ungodliness and those whose teaching condones it. I think that's what he's saying in 6:14 to 7:1, the heart of uh, the, uh, the, the passage. So he said at all his credentials for authenticity. What he teaches about the gospel, what he teaches about the Christian life, his own lifestyle and experience, and all that he has laid on the line for them. He has appealed to their heart, and he says, I am giving you all of my heart. Give me your heart. He's appealing to us. And now they ask a test Will you change? Is called to repent and separate from ungodliness. Do not, verse 14, be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership is righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship is light with darkness? Now, this does not mean separation from the world in the sense of withdrawal or isolation. A text like do not be unequally yoked has been used for that reason in certain quarters that you you'd only work in a, in a business, say, where there are Christians. I mean, that that's, has been common in our history. It's not what it's saying. What it means is separation from ungodliness while living in the world. It means Christian distinctiveness. The phrase, unequally yoked with unbelievers, means that as Christians, we cannot live a kind of hybrid life, a compromised life. Now, you are immediately thinking, oh, but I do because I battle with stuff all of the time. What's happened in the church in Corinth is that they're not battling anymore. They're distancing themselves from the call to repent, and our journey through this life is a constant, constant reformation in our lives and hearts sanctification, as we grow into the likeness of Christ. And what Paul is saying simply is that as Christians, we cannot live in the same way that people who aren't Christians live, for we are Christ's. Paul is saying, give me your heart. Your heart is Christ's. Let him see his life in yours. You are his children, called to live holy lives, different standards, ethics, morality, and speech. The word compromise is perhaps a helpful. That's Paul's point. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? None. Or what fellowship has light with darkness? None. You cannot live two uh, lives. Now, the phrase, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, often applied in the realm of Christian dating, marrying people who are not Christians, um, Christians marrying people or dating them. And and God's Word says that is wrong and unwise. And it, it does mean that, but it's much broader than that. Why repent and separate from ungodliness? Why the appeal to the heart? Answer, because of who you are. Verses 16 to 18, we'll not read them because of the time, is a kind of composite quotation. And you have to take my word from this. From Leviticus to Samuel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. I looked that up as well. And the point is all over the Old Testament Scriptures, God says, my people are to be different. They, we are the temple of the living God. God dwells, he lives in believers. Individually, corporately, as Christian communities. And just pause and apply that directly to this room of people, this church family. God says, you are my temple in your lives I dwell, and together gather into this local church. You are my temple. You are how this culture sees my son. You are how this culture sees a foreshadowing of eternity in the way you live, in the way you love one another. And there are times when the church, which is the people of God through history, need to hear that message urgently. These composite quotations take us back to after the exodus or after the exile. They take us to a point in the history of God's people where God's people have lost their distinctiveness. And they're down there somewhere in the trenches. And Jesus through his apostles, gets our hearts, and he says, Give me your hearts, because you are my temple. I want you to shine for Christ. Now, what are the specific areas of ungodliness that had gone awry in the church in Corinth. Turn forward in your Bibles or on your phone, just one cross-reference tonight, to chapter 12, verses 20 and 21. This is what had gone wrong. For I fear that perhaps when I come, after he's written this letter, I may find you not as I wish, And that you may find me not as you wish. Notice that Paul is not standing six feet above contradiction. That perhaps there may still be quarreling and jealousy and anger and hostility and slander and gossip and conceit and disorder in the church. And I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you. And I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. There are two issues going on in the church in Corinth. One is what we might call divisive behavior, speech. And the second is sexual immorality. I want to concentrate a little bit on the second because uh, we haven't done so for a bit of time and it's absolutely relevant and it is a defining issue in the world church, it just is everywhere. One of the most powerful letters I ever received and I had a conversation with someone to say why, why is it this issue? And the answer was, it allows the church to be truthful, but it obligates them to be gracious and loving. I found that hugely helpful. It is the issue. What does sexual immorality mean? The word that is dominant in the New Testament is porneia, and that word has a crystal clear meaning in the Word of God. There is no ambiguity. It is always used in the same way. Sexual immorality or impurity or sensuality, the word porneia means any form of sexual activity outside the bounds of marriage, which is a lifelong commitment between a man and a woman. And you see why. You see how. How, how, how easy it is to distance oneself from the Apostles' teaching in the culture we live in. And there's no harshness here. Remember the Apostle Paul appealing to their heart. There is not a vestige of arrogance or insensitivity in the apostles' words. So what does it mean, sexual activity outside the bounds of marriage? It means Christians are to not have sex before marriage. What if I'm engaged to or in love with that person? What if I'm committed to them? God's word says There's a better way. Adultery, involvement with someone other than the person to whom you're married. Homosexual sex, God says it is wrong. Sexual immorality includes lust, other forms of sexual sin like pornography. Not just what we do, what we think about, where our minds go. On pornography, what is the scope? Here's a phrase I heard recently from someone there is pornography on Netflix, not just on x That's spot on. It's just a different rank. Now, and we need to wrap up, and I'm aware that tonight we're back on ground that we come to when we come to it in God's Word, and here we are. We'll come to it later in the letter. And... These are issues that we want to be uh, speaking about and talking together about and encouraging each other in. I want us to note a very important distinction between the world or the culture and the church in terms of how we speak about sexual ethics. It is right for us as Christians to be concerned about sexual ethics in the world and in the culture and to speak into that realm wisely and winsomely and graciously. We might be shocked at what's happening in our culture, but we shouldn't be surprised. But we should be shocked when the world or the culture's sexual ethics are embraced by the church Because Christians are to live according to the word of God in this area and many others. And that means distinctiveness. And that means increasingly so in the culture, simply by not moving. And it is extremely difficult. My observation is that The generation after me and perhaps the beginnings of the generation after that as Christians are clear are able to be gracious and yet different in the global church one of the clearest lines of distinctiveness is being drawn in sexual ethics and Christians need to be clear and different why There are many answers in the Bible. The answers, though, are very moving. obedience to God is one, the pleasure of God, the protection of others, the preservation of families, and all of the time pointing people to the Lord Jesus. Now, the reason the people in the church in Corinth were living in this way, was the pressure to conform to the world, and the fact that leaders in the church were not condemning, that's the wrong word, they're right not to condemn. So there's an example of poor rhetoric for me. And we've got to call it when it's there. There are those who teach against the apostle. There would have been those in Corinth, and certainly there are those in the wider church very clearly who do. But the issue is much more likely this. It's a phrase that one of our guys used in our sermon prep. We benefit hugely from working hard on our sermons. It's not that they're teaching licentiousness. It's just that they're not teaching repentance. That's exactly right, exactly right. Now we need to finish, our time is gone. Three applications as we close. Number one, give your heart allegiance to the apostles. Plural I put there. Um, And the movement between apostrophe S and S apostrophe in the handout is intentional. I'm going with Paul and all the apostles now. And it's a wonderful phrase, isn't it? As all of these apostles appointed by Jesus to write down his words, we take all of their words in the New Testament and the old that they affirm and their lives. Think of Peter and James and Paul and and they appeal to our hearts. Think of Paul to Timothy in the first century. My dear son, guard the gospel. Secondly, imitate the apostles' ministry in their life and teaching in your ministry. That cashes out in terms of those of us who are elders, those of us who are preachers, but it cashes out just as much in our small groups when you watch people who are drifting and distancing and appeal to their hearts. And then what's really important, and I suspect this may well be an application from this sermon for um, the preacher, and many more, I assume, repent and separate from ungodliness and those whose teaching condones it. And don't let the devil confuse what Paul is saying to us with any sense that we will be free of sexual sin and the sin of speech and the sin of division. But when we don't wrestle with it or call it out, then we will lose our distinctiveness and our attractiveness. Let me encourage you all in your endeavors to allow the Holy Spirit to sanctify you and to render, God willing, this church family humbled by repentance, contrite, conscience awakened, and different. And I hope and pray that when people come in next Saturday, they will experience people whose hearts are Christ's. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we all sit tonight and hear the appeal from the apostles. Give us your hearts live in the world but not like the world and lord for many of us tonight these truths not least in the realm of immorality or speech will have really touched our hearts And the answer is, and the application is, is to repent and change. And if we need the help of another to help us do that, help us to avail ourselves of that help, whether in our homes or with our friends or those within the family of God in this local church, that with all its warts and issues, has much evidence of being real. And we desire it be so more and more. Lord, may we show Jesus in how we live and stick with him because he sure sticks with us when we do. And we pray that in his name and for his sake. Amen.